This afternoon, we're hosting a debate on one of the most important legal issues that has arisen since the September 11th terrorist attacks, and that's the idea of trials before military tribunals. Tomorrow morning, the Supreme Court is going to be hearing arguments in a case called Hamdan versus Rumsfeld, which is basically a legal challenge that is being brought to the jurisdiction of military tribunals. So the arguments that you're going to be hearing here this afternoon is basically a preview of what the Supreme Court justices are going to be hearing tomorrow morning. Before I introduce our first speaker, I do want to take just a few minutes to lay something of a foundation for our debate this afternoon. The first point that I want to make concerns Guantanamo Bay. Now, the prison facility down there has been in the news a lot lately, uh, over the, actually over the past few years, and the legal issues can get very complex. So the first thing that I want to do is try to clarify exactly what we're going to be debating this afternoon. The legal controversies arising out of Guantanamo Bay can be separated into, I think, three basic categories. The first one we can call detention issues. When countries go to war, uh, enemy soldiers are captured on the battlefield and they're put in POW camps. Now everybody that, recognizes that this is a common practice during wartime. Now there are controversies that arise from time to time over particular people. They may say, well, a particular person is being held as a POW and he shouldn't be. That's a detention issue. The second category of, of controversy concerns treatment issues. This is whether or not the people being held in the POW camps or in prisons are being well treated or are they being mistreated or abused. That's a treatment issue. The third category concerns trials and that's what our debate is going to be about this afternoon. Detention issues are important, so are treatment issues, but those are not the issues that the Supreme Court is going to be addressing tomorrow and it's not going to be the subject of our debate here this afternoon. Now of the about 500 people being held down in Guantanamo Bay, President Bush has designated about 10 persons that are going to be put on trial before these military tribunals. And the important difference between somebody that's being held down there, uh, being held and detained down there, and somebody who's being held separately and is about to go on trial before a military tribunal is the punishment that the government can inflict. If somebody is found guilty before a military tribunal, the government could possibly impose the death penalty on that person. So it's an important distinction between somebody that's going on trial before a tribunal and somebody who's simply being detained down there as a POW. The second point that I want to make are concerns the different forums in which terrorism trials can take place. There are basically three possible forums. The first one everybody is familiar with, and that is civilian court and trial by jury. Remember that the men who were responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995 were tried in civilian court before a trial by jury. McVeigh was executed in the summer of 2001, and Terry, Terry Nichols is presently serving uh, life in prison. Also, the mastermind behind the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, Ramzi Youssef, he was also tried in civilian court and is presently serving life in prison. More recently, the Zacharias Massawi case has been in the news a lot lately, the past few weeks. He pled guilty in civilian court, and we're going to find out very shortly whether he's going to get the death sentence or whether he's going to serve life in prison. The second forum in which trials can take place are called the court martial. And this is where members of the U.S. military are tried and punished for crimes, according to the Uniform Code of Military Justice. 
court martials were in the news last week when a member of the U.S. military was uh, tried before a court martial for abusing prisoners at the Abu Ghraib prison over in Iraq. He was tried before a court martial for abusing prisoners and was sentenced to some prison time. So that's the court martial. The third forum in which people can be tried is the military tribunal or military commission. Tribunals are special courts that are convened for trials using special rules and procedures, not rules passed by the Congress, but rules that are developed by the President and by top officials in the Pentagon. They're often criticized for being ad hoc rules because they're not general rules that apply to everybody. Boiled down, the Supreme Court must decide what is the appropriate jurisdiction for the civilian courts, what is the appropriate jurisdiction for the court marshals, and what is the appropriate jurisdiction for military tribunals. Now, the last point that I want to make concerns the potential impact that this case, Hamdan versus Rumsfeld, is going to have on our law. Although the man that is challenging the tribunals in the Supreme Court was captured overseas in, Af in Afghanistan, and he's not a U.S. citizen, and he's accused of being an al-Qaeda terrorist, the case is not only going to impact America's international relations, the case is also going to have an impact on our domestic law. I say that because Mr. Bush and his lawyers have made it very clear that they want a legal precedent from the Supreme Court that says that the President, as Commander-in-Chief, can arrest anybody in the world and then put that person on trial before a military tribunal. They've made it very clear that these powers can be exercised uh, against American citizens right here at home. Uh, the President talks about the global war on terror, and his lawyers have gone into court frequently, and they've said that they consider the United States to be a battlefield in this war. So they think it's appropriate that the laws of war and military jurisdiction apply even here in the United States. Now, even though Mr. Bush is acting in good faith, doing what he thinks is right to protect the country, this idea that the President can assume legislative powers to make rules and that he can assume judicial powers to adjudicate the guilt or innocence of persons on trial this, this poses a direct challenge to the separation of powers principle of our Constitution, and that's why the Cato Institute filed a brief in this case, Hamden versus Rumsfeld, and it's why we're hosting today's debate, to draw more attention to these legal issues uh, that are coming up before the court. Okay, let's turn now to our debaters and get started. The format for our debate today is very simple. Each speaker is going to have 20 minutes to make his initial presentation. Then we are going to have a very brief five-minute second round where each speaker is going to have an opportunity to respond to what the other person has said, and then we're going to open it up and take questions from the audience. At this point, before we get started, I do have a request that anybody here with a cell phone, please double-check your cell phones and make sure that they are turned off uh, as a courtesy to our speakers. Thank you. Our first speaker today is Richard Samp. Mr. Samp earned his undergraduate degree from Harvard and his law degree from the University of Michigan. After law school, he joined the Washington, D.C. law firm of Shaw Pittman. After a few years in private practice, he joined the Washington Legal Foundation, which is a nonprofit public interest law firm here in D.C. Mr. Samp is now the chief counsel at Washington Legal, and he has himself argued cases before the Supreme Court. He's authored several legal briefs in the major national security cases that have come before the court in recent years, including a brief in Hamdan versus Rumsfeld, the issue of military tribunals. So would you please give a warm welcome to our first speaker, Mr. Richard Samp.
Thanks very much, Tim. It's a real pleasure to be here. And it's a real pleasure to be here with somebody whose work I admire, like Commander Swift, who has done a very good job of representing uh, Mr. Hamden. He's done an excellent job of getting the case all the way to the Supreme Court. And uh, one of the things that I most admire about the system that has been set up uh, in this country of military justice is that we have put enough money into defense of of uh, those charged before either court-martials or military commissions, that they can get uh, a fair representation before the courts. And so I don't think we need to worry about any sort of kangaroo justice taking place here. Now, one of the things that has been very difficult about this case in the uh, uh, covering it in the press to this point is that uh, one of the the, the things that Commander Swift has done is to raise so many issues that, that uh, uh, with so many issues to cover, uh, it is really not easy to explain all the things that this case is about. So I'm going to try to go over what I think the principal issues are before the court, express my views on some of them, uh, but understanding that in the limited amount of time that we have, we're not really going to be able to go into any depth in, uh, of any of them at all. Uh, first of all, an issue that uh, I'm just going to very briefly cover is the DTA, the Detainee Treatment Act, which was passed by Congress in December, which purports to uh, strip the uh, federal courts of habeas corpus jurisdiction um, uh, over challenges such as those brought by uh, Mr. Hamdan, who, by the way, is the is accused of being the uh, personal chauffeur and close aide of Osama bin Laden, the uh, principal question that's going to be argued before the court is: Does the DTA apply retroactively to people whose cases were already in the courts as of the time that? Uh, uh, the Congress passed the law in December, and there are multiple briefs that focus on that issue alone, and they go into the question of congressional intent, and uh, I, we could argue that all afternoon, so I'm, I'm not going to say anything further about that. If the government wins the issue of statutory interpretation, then that's going to raise an additional issue under what is known as the suspension clause, which says that except uh, by a very explicit act of Congress, the uh, right to uh, habeas corpus in the federal courts may not be suspended. And so the question would be uh, whether or not uh, in this case, if uh, Mr. Hamden is denied his day in court, is this a violation of the suspension clause? And again, that raises a whole host of issues that I'm not going to get into right now. I am going to raise one other procedural issue uh, because it is the issue that the Washington Legal Foundation's brief focused on. And that's the question of, in general, ought you to be having challenges to military commissions before trial or after trial? It's the norm in this country that challenges to trials come after there has been a trial and after there has been a conviction. Of course, if there is an acquittal, that's the end of the case and there's nothing further to appeal. But normally... Uh, if you are charged with a crime and the trial court uh, fails to dismiss the, uh, uh, the claims against you, 
you have to go to trial. You can't appeal that denial of dismissal. Furthermore, if you are charged with a crime in state court, you cannot go into federal court and say what they're doing is unconstitutional. You have to wait until after there has been a trial in, in the, uh, uh, in the uh, uh, state court and then uh, appeal that decision theoretically all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court if need be. If you are involved in a court-martial, in general, the Supreme Court has said in a case from the 1970s by the name of Schlesinger, you may not go into federal court and challenge your military court-martial, even if you think that the uh, court-martial doesn't have jurisdiction over you. Rather, you have to stand uh, for your court-martial, and if you're convicted, then you can appeal up through the Court of Military Appeals and then seek review in the U.S. Supreme Court. And the basis of our brief in the Supreme Court is that the same rule ought to apply to military commissions. Now, Mr. Hamdan claims that there's no jurisdiction over him because, in fact, uh, he claims the president doesn't have the authority to set up commissions, and if he does have the authority to set up commissions, he doesn't have the authority to set them up with the rules that were applied in this particular case, and even if the rules were okay, well, the particular charges that were brought against him are not within the law of war, and therefore uh, that's, that's again a challenge to the right of the government to go forward against him. Nonetheless, the normal rule is that you ought to wait until after you've had your military commission before you bring your appeal, so that that is, uh, if the court is going to rule against Mr. Hamdan on procedural issue, my betting is much more on this abstention issue than it is on the DTA issue. Uh, judges like uh, Justice Kennedy feel that uh, federal court jurisdiction should be very broad, so that while he might be a vote on the merits against uh, uh, Mr. Hamdan, I very much doubt that he is going to say there is no jurisdiction, so that if the court decides in the end to take a pass on the case for now, I suspect it's going to be because it says that it ought to abstain. Now, going on to uh, some of the issues on the merits, the, uh, the most basic issue that is raised is whether the president has the authority to set up commissions. Now, there have been no military commissions in this country since the end of World War II, and uh, some people would argue that uh, the president doesn't have the authority. And those people would say, yes, the president has authority if Congress uh, gives him the authority, but Congress hasn't done so, and therefore uh, what he is doing is unconstitutional, and we ought to uh, uh, stop him in his tracks before he goes any further, and if he wants to have commissions, he ought to go to Congress. Well, that was one of the very issues that was raised in the Quirin case that came before the Supreme Court in 1942 when there were eight Nazi saboteurs who were uh, charged with having sneaked into this country, and they were brought before a military commission, and the argument was that Congress had not authorized these kinds of military commissions, and the Supreme Court unanimously rejected that argument. They went through the history of military commissions throughout American history. Uh, for example, during the Revolutionary War, uh, uh, President Washington made extensive use of military commissions to try uh, alleged war criminals among uh, enemy combatants, most famously uh, Major Andre, who was a, uh, uh, a co-conspirator along with Benedict Arnold, was uh, tried in, what, in front of what was the equivalent of a military commission and was found guilty and was hanged. 
Uh, there were similarly military commissions in the aftermath of the War of 1812. There were military commissions in the, uh, the Mexican-American War, the Civil War, during the Philippine insurrection following the uh, 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 the, the uh, Spanish-American War and also during World War II. And so what the Clearan Court said in 1942 was that because of this long history, uh, we just have to assume that uh, if Congress didn't want these kinds of commissions, it should have said something. So uh, we're going to look at uh, some of the provisions here from the uh, Articles of War that were then in existence, and we, we look upon that language, although it's somewhat ambiguous, as giving this authorization to uh, uh, to Congress. So the president won in 1942. So for Swift to make this argument that uh, there is no authority, uh, he's got a really he's got a, a tough road to hoe to overcome the Quirin case. His task is even made more difficult because in the early 1950s, Congress passed the Uniform Code of uh, Military Justice, which actually recodified the very same language that was relied upon by. Uh, the Quirin Court, uh, and uh, did so with the knowledge that just a few years before, the Supreme Court had said this language uh, constitutes congressional authorization for military commissions. So uh, while the language is just as ambiguous today uh, in the statutes as it was in 1942, given that this identical language has already in the past been uh, uh, construed by the Supreme Court as authorizing military commissions, I think it's a very difficult argument to say that there is not present authorization. And in fact, one of the things that is overlooked by the press when they talk about this case was that Judge Robertson, who was the district judge who heard this case originally and who struck down uh, the commissions as they were implemented against Mr. Hamden, in fact, admitted that Congress had authorized at least some military commissions. He just didn't like the way these uh, particular commissions were set up. And on that point, he was unanimously affirmed by the D.C. Circuit by a panel that included current Chief Justice John Roberts. So that all four judges who have looked at this issue have ruled in favor of the uh, government on this issue. Uh, I mentioned uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, his involvement in the uh, Court of Appeals. Uh, because of that involvement, he is going to be recusing himself tomorrow. So there are only going to be eight justices involved, which uh, unfortunately uh, leaves open the possibility that the court will end up uh, being uh, tied four to four on some of the issues that come before the court. Now, uh, because uh, the, the issue of presidential authorization I don't think it's a particularly close one. In fact, although the argument is made by Mr. Hamden's attorneys, uh, if you read their briefs carefully, uh, much of the argument that they make focuses not on that basic uh, issue of authority, but rather on some of the subordinate issues about how this particular set of commissions is being run. Uh, one of the uh, issues that is invoked is the Third Geneva uh, Convention, which is the uh, Geneva Convention from 1949 that deals with the treatment of prisoners of war. And one of the things that the Third Geneva Convention does is to set up criteria for when somebody ought to be treated as a prisoner of war. And there's another provision in the Geneva Convention that says that if you are a prisoner of war, then if 
the, uh, uh, the detaining authority, in this case the United States, decides to hold war, tri- uh, war crime trials uh, against a prisoner of war, then the procedural rules that must be adopted uh, in that uh, uh, military commission are the same rules that uh, the host country would apply to its own military in court martials. Well, one thing that has happened since World War II is that uh, uh, the uh, the United States government has given more and more rights to uh, American soldiers who are facing court martials, uh, with the result that they have almost the same rights in a court martial that a civilian would have in a criminal court. And uh, I suspect that people such as Commander Swift, who come from that background of doing lots of court martials, would like to see uh, commissions uh, giving uh, many of these same sorts of rights. Uh, what has happened is that the military commissions, since they haven't existed for 50 or 60 years, uh, when they were reconstituted by the Bush administration, they went back to the uh, uh, Roosevelt administration rules, and they basically adopted the same rules that uh, had been in place in that era. So nobody is saying that the rules that are uh, being adopted now are any less fair than the rules that we have had in the past. In many ways, actually, they give more rights to defendants. But it is true that the number of rights being afforded uh, in these military commissions are less than those that are available in court-martials. So if it is true that Mr. Hamdan should be considered a, a, a prisoner of war, then it would be a violation of the uh, Third Geneva Convention not to treat him the same way that American soldiers are treated in court-martials. Uh, however, in order to be able to make this argument, there are some obstacles that are facing uh, uh, Mr. And In particular, no court has ever held up to this point that the uh, Geneva Conventions are enforceable in court by individuals who are, are facing uh, alleged violations of the Geneva Convention. Rather, uh, the, in the past, courts have generally said that the Geneva Conventions uh, are enforceable on a nation-to-nation basis. If, uh, uh, for example, um, uh, I guess Mr. Hamdan is a citizen of Yemen. If, if Yemen was not satisfied with the way he was being treated, it could try to enter into bilateral negotiations with uh, the United States and ask for better treatment. But up to this point, courts have not given uh, uh, the right to individuals to enforce the Geneva Conventions. Judge Robertson did say, yes, they are individually uh, enforceable. The D.C. Circuit unanimously reversed him on that point. Now, the Supreme Court has never decided the issue. They did decide in the Kieran case in 1942 that the 1929 Geneva Convention was not individually enforceable, but this is a different convention with different language, so arguably it is enforceable by private citizens. And frankly, I'm I'm not here representing the government. I have to say, I think there are some relatively strong arguments that individuals ought to be able to go into court and enforce their rights under the Geneva Convention. I can see the argument going both ways. Nonetheless, even if the Geneva Convention applies to Mr. Hamdan, I think it's pretty clear that he doesn't qualify as a prisoner of war. He, in fact, uh, was fighting not for a regular military force that wore uniforms and bore their arms openly. Rather, he is accused of having conspired with al-Qaeda to murder American citizens. Now, he denies that, and obviously 
that's an issue that will have to be decided at his eventual military commission. But the fact is that if the government is correct that he is a member of al-Qaeda, he doesn't really have much of an argument that uh, a member of al-Qaeda ought to uh, be treated as a, um, a, a prisoner of war. And in fact, one thing that's very interesting is uh, even uh, uh, Judge Robertson's fellow uh, judge on the D.C. District Court who issued a decision uh, in the Guantanamo Bay detention cases, Judge Joyce Hens Green, and she issued a decision that was very favorable in many respects to the detainees, but she very clearly said, while I agree with a lot of what Judge Robertson said, I very strongly disagree with him on this point. Uh, I do not believe that members of al-Qaeda are prisoners of war. So assuming he is not a prisoner of war, he's not going to win his uh, argument under the Geneva Convention. He also makes some arguments under uh, the Uniform Code of Commercial, excuse me, the Uniform Code of Military Justice, which, as I said, gives certain rights to uh, uh, members of the military when they are are uh, charged uh, in a court martial. And the argument is that well, those same rights ought to also apply in a military commission. And I won't get into the details of all of that, except to say. Uh, that argument was very quickly brushed aside by the D.C. Circuit. Uh, the language of the Uniform Code of, of uh, Military Justice is pretty clear that uh, the rules that they were establishing uh, were intended to apply to court-martials. They really weren't establishing rules for military commissions. And uh, uh, so I, I don't think that the Supreme Court is... Uh, uh, likely to give a, a lot of play to that particular argument. One other argument I wanted to mention that is raised here is uh, that Mr. Uh, Hamdan, of course, is accused of, of uh, uh, conspiring to murder Americans. And there is some argument under international law that conspiracy ought not to be a, uh, uh, something that is chargeable as a violation of the law of war that uh, uh, conspiracy, uh, according to Mr. Hamdan's attorney, is a, is a very disfavored uh, uh, part of the criminal justice system and ought not to be extended into the uh, uh, military commission system. Well, the difficulty with that argument is, of course, uh, the U.S. Uh, criminal justice system, which uh, is, in this case, held up as the model as to what people ought to be aspiring to, allows uh, conspiracy charges all the time. So to say that uh, uh, it's disfavored and shouldn't be allowed in front of a military commission uh, suggests that uh, we ought to be giving more rights to people in front of military commissions than we do to people charged in the, uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, regular criminal justice system. Now, as to some of the very specific points that are raised about what is unfair about the procedures, the number one point that is uh, uh, harped on uh, by Hamden's attorneys, and it's the one that was focused on most strongly by Judge Robertson, is the fact that he may be excluded from some portions of his uh, uh, proceedings and instead only his lawyer could be present uh, because uh, he, uh, if there were some kind of highly confidential uh, uh, information that was being brought in front of the tribunal, uh, it perhaps it, it would be better off if he didn't hear that information. All I can say is while it may be unfair for someone to be excluded from his own proceeding, the military commission doesn't have to exclude him. And it seems to me that's the perfect sort of argument you ought to raise in front of the commission itself. 
We don't know yet whether he is going to be uh, excluded from the trial. I gather that he was excluded from some minor portion of the uh, uh, pretrial proceedings where he uh, was uh, uh, not allowed to uh, hear one of the issues as to whether or not one of the particular judges ought to be allowed to be part of the tribunal. But if he thinks it's unfair uh, that he cannot be ex- that he be excluded because he c- could not adequately participate in his own defense, that's an argument to raise in front of the commission. And I suspect that if he makes a good argument, the commission will allow him to uh, participate fully. So why the Supreme Court should jump in early and hear that issue, I don't know. I'm going to save for any questions and uh, answers later as to why I think it's a good idea to be having military commissions, why it's the way to be going, uh, rather than to uh, try him in front of a court-martial. But I think my time is up, and with that, I'll let you hear from the other side. Thank you very much. Thank you, Richard. Our second speaker today is Lieutenant Commander Charles Swift. Commander Swift is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy and has been in the Navy now for more than 18 years. For the past 11 years, he has been a member of the Navy Judge Advocate General Corps, or the JAGS, and a few years ago, he was assigned as the Military Defense Counsel for Mr. Hamden, and he's going to be at the Supreme Court tomorrow for this historic case concerning the scope of military jurisdiction. Would you please welcome Lieutenant Commander Charles Swift. Good morning. Uh, Thank you very much for having me here today. I think one of the things we're all in agreement with is that these are fundamental questions. I'd also like to deal very briefly with the abstention and uh, the Detainee Treatment Act. Uh, I'm going to deal throughout these questions because there's lots of legal arguments. I'm going to try and focus your idea actually on outcomes. What happens if? Well, on question number one, and these will all be considered by the court, Question number one, should we hear this case now? What happens if we don't? Well, this is a fundamental challenge to the legality of the court, of the commission process. And if we wait to hear those questions, government's indicated that it will have 75. Uh, If you look at the DTA part, where you can't have this until there's a final decision, well, when there's a final decision, rests in the executive's hands. And there has been a concerted effort, really, in placing Mr. Hamdan in Guantanamo, where it was argued there was no jurisdiction, not having charges until the court found uh, the Supreme Court found otherwise in Razul, and then continuously arguing that we shouldn't hear this case now, that certainly could come, cast some doubt as to whether there'll be an immediate final decision should he be found guilty. Uh, and in fact there is a very real possibility that all 75 cases will be heard. What are the implications of that? What if the court finds that uh, I'm right, and Mr. Hamden's right, and the courts weren't legal from the beginning? We will have done 75 cases for nothing. We will have spent the resources, the time, and basically our standing in the world community after we strike down all 75 cases. I submit that the victims of 9-11 deserve better than that, that they deserve a process that they can be confident with will be legal now, not have to wait for later. And this isn't a question of whether a piece of evidence should be admitted or not. This is a question of whether this system of trial is legal at all. And for that reason, the courts have not abstained. 
in those questions, both in a case called New and a case called, and of course, Querin, both of those cases were ongoing at the time that the challenges were brought, and the court saw it as appropriate to hear the case now. And these were cases of fundamentally whether the military could do this at all. Councilman is a very different case because the individual bringing it was, in fact, in uniform, and it was clear that they had jurisdiction. The question was, at that time, there was a rule that charges had to extend, had to somehow be connected to the military, and they said, well, the military, that's a factual question, really, and we'll abstain. It's not a structural question. And in this case, these are structural questions that the courts always heard. Now to question one. There's a bit of confusion on question one because it's easy to play a shell game. The argument goes, these are all people captured on a battlefield. Well, if it were about a battlefield, as we understand it in Afghanistan, this would be a lot easier question. But it's not about a battlefield in Afghanistan. You see, Mr. Hamdan's charges start in 1995. The President maintains that we've been at war since 1995 because one thing I think we can all agree on for a military commission is you have to have a war. No war, no commission. That this war is not defined by any boundary. This war is not defined by time and we will probably not even know when it ends. It is a war that will last for a very long time. If you agree that the President has the authority to bring Mr. Kamdan's commission into place, then the President is, we are at war with Al-Qaeda and the President has the full panoply of war powers. How do I know that? Well, I look back at the Civil War, probably the greatest war we ever fought. And the, the uh, Supreme Court considered war powers in two very important cases. The prize cases at the beginning and Milligan at the end. In the prize cases, the President was found to have the powers of a, of a wartime commander on a battlefield. That was to seize ships to fight. But in the secondary case, it was found that he did not have the power to try Mr. Milligan in a military commission. So that there was some boundary on that power. Now, in this particular case, in a war that's not classically defined between states, what the President argues is the full gamut. Because if you have a military commission, the power to impose life and death on prisoners, it's very difficult to figure out what power you wouldn't have. It would make absolute sense to me as a military officer if someone told me, okay, the United States, Chicago is a battlefield. Okay, here are the answers. Uh, if there are any people we believe reasonably to be members of this organization, you should not capture them, you should kill them. Because that's what we consider the enemy targets. Now, this isn't about being fair. You don't try and capture the enemy. The enemy can choose to surrender, but that's not what you're out there to do. You're out there to kill them. The next implication of it is, if a military commander were to ask me, well, what can I do about radio transmissions in Chicago or telephone calls? I'd tell him, well, gee, you can search any of them. This isn't even a search, sir. This is a battlefield. If you'd like to jam the television stations, by all means, go forward and do that. Let's get the uh, EA-6 Bravos in the air because we need to control the battlefield's airspace. That's how I view a battlefield. And this battlefield hasn't been defined. See, we all agree that this is a new war, if it is a war at all, and that new rules are going to be necessary. The argument here, though, is that the person who writes the rules can't be the president. 
Not in all of them. And that's the president's argument. I get to write the rules. The cases they cite, and which were cited you here today, Quirin, is not nearly the easy question that is presented. Uh, because Quirin was a, an old rules case. Quirin was decided in a clear war. Not only was there a declaration, what there was was two nation states, actually multiple nation states, fighting each other. It was undisputed that these were, in fact, German soldiers and that they were part of a military force that was opposing them. And they were presumed, in that context, it was also undisputed that they'd acted as spies. Now, one of the propositions that were given to you on the Geneva Convention, but I'll address here, is that al-Qaeda doesn't get it. And Mr. Hamdan's alleged to be al-Qaeda. Now, he also has presumption of innocence, and I have yet to figure this one out, because his trial is presumed on the idea that he is a member of al-Qaeda and therefore a criminal. But his trial has to presume that he has committed those offense, uh, his offenses to be legal at all. In other words, it kind of comes to this question. Terrorists should be tried by military commission. How do you know they're terrorists until they've had a trial? Why else would they be at military commissions? So I think that it's a much harder question in a new war than it was in Quirin. The next part that was cited was Article 821, and I absolutely agree that it's the same part of the historic, but you need to know what General Crowder had told Congress at the time. He said these were our historic commissions, that they were bound by our historic rules, and all we were doing was preserve what we had. Well, those had been commissions utilized in the conflict of readily uh, acknowledged wars that fell under the basic rules. In none of those wars had we suggested that the other side wasn't entitled to POW status. Here we do. We take a totally different view of it. So is 821 such that it can be expanded to anything that is called a war? Why can't it be expanded to the war on drugs? Poses Certainly, I think everyone in this room would agree, agree that narco-traffickers pose a clear and present danger to the security of this country. Why can't it be expanded to them? Again, it's a war on drugs. We use the military. Congress has authorized us to use the military. Does this mean we can now try them in military commissions? That the president can decide that. There are fundamental questions here. What we argue is that essentially what the president gets in a much looser context is what was denied him in Hamdi in the very limited context of the battlefield of Afghanistan, which was clearly international armed conflict. And that is a blank check. He is free to do whatever he sees fit. Now, moving on to conspiracy, and it suggested, well, gee, conspiracy isn't a U.S. crime, and that doesn't matter. Well, the whole purpose of military justice is that it does not become regular justice. This is, our founders were very clear about this. They didn't want military justice to be the norm. In fact, we, one of the reasons we'd explained to King George that we could leave and it was our revolution was justified, was that we were being subjugated as second-class citizens to those in England. 
and that we weren't getting the protections of the Magna Carta and that all men had these rights and that military justice, while appropriate, can't be a general rule. So what we try and do is take a charge from the civilian system and move it over. Under that rationale, shoplifting can now be a war crime because it exists in the military, it exists in the civilian system. Why can't it exist over here? We drew very bright lines rather than have this expand. Conspiracy hasn't been rejected by a few. It was rejected at Nuremberg. It has been rejected at Yugoslavia in the recent international tribunals. It was re uh, rejected in the Rome Statute, and it has been rejected in Rwanda. Conspiracy isn't a war crime. Why? Because it's collective liability. And what it has is the real specter that all members of a military can be charged. Let's look at Abu Ghraib for a second. Under the theory that you are a member of the U.S. military and have some knowledge of what's going on in Abu Ghraib, or reasonably should have had that knowledge. We don't have to prove that you knew it, just that you took steps for interrogation and you took steps for uh, incarceration and that this was a reasonably foreseeable outcome. No war criminal. No war criminal. Certainly, if, you, uh, if there are any interrogations that continue after that, under the Yamashita theory, you, we now have command responsibility. You're a war criminal. We also have a great reason conspiracy shouldn't be a war crime just practically on the battlefield. Think about Iraq for a moment when the commanders went out and let's say they did have nerve gas, a very real belief at the time. They have nerve gas. It's been dispersed. There was a plan to use it. Okay, that sounds like a conspiracy to me. Agreement, plan, put out. Do we want the generals to be guilty of a war crime right now, punishable by death? So the idea is, what the heck? Shoot it. I'm already guilty. If I get captured, I'm going to be tried. I might as well go ahead. The really, what we want them to do is at that moment of truth, say, uh-uh, I'm not doing it. You know, the, Saddam Hussein may be back in the palace and he can take responsibility for what he did, but I'm an honorable warrior and I'm going to fight in an honorable way. So we have the idea that armies aren't collectively responsible. No military force is for the actions of all. They're responsible for what each individual does. Next, uh, the rules. And much has been played out under the rules. And I'm going to give you yet another historic example that was cited by, uh, in the Wall Street Journal. And that was during World War II, and I think that this one really plays in well. You see, the Japanese hadn't signed the Geneva Conventions in 1929. They had good reason. They didn't believe they'd ever have a prisoner of war on their side. The Japanese were expected to fight to the death, and if defeated, to commit suicide because it was dishonorable. So why did they care about how their people were treated? They wouldn't have any people in there. So under a contractual theory that certainly was present at the time, they had no obligation to follow the Geneva Convention. They had the same legal argument. Now, how did they look at American flyers who firebombed Tokyo? Why, they were war criminals, of course. They were attacking citizens. They weren't attacking military installations. At least that's what the Japanese said, that they had firebombed Tokyo. So every one of them, the emperor or the or the generals could declare without any particularized finding was in fact a war criminal. 
And when he parachuted out of his plane as he was shot down, we knew he was a war criminal upon capture. That meant he didn't have to be protected at all, and of course we could whisk him off and have a trial. And in fact, they did that in several cases. What could happen at those trials? Well, the Japanese had adopted their manuals for court-martial and their manuals largely from the West. They had adopted uh, Western uh, both rules for the Navy and armored forces. But in these cases, because they were war criminals, they didn't have to follow them. So they deviated significantly from their manuals on what they were going to do. And in fact, our prosecutors charged them with that. Uh, they looked at interrogations, and as Mr. Braven pointed out, they said, well, an interrogation was fine if you put someone on their knees in, on cement for two or three hours. Now, that was a good way to elicit a confession. In fact, you didn't even have to tell them that that's what you were trying to do. Just put them on their knees and interrogate them for a few hours, and if you elicit a confession that they were, in fact, a flyer, and that they had been in this B-52, or excuse me, B-29, you were, in fact, guilty, and that was the end of it. And we could have large portions of your hearing without you there. And if something was going the way, you know, if the judge advocate sitting in the back of the room didn't like how it was going, he was free to change the rules. We tried all those as war crimes. All of them. And we said that basic standards of humanity and the common law of war required all of these things to be done. We say nothing else. We argue that because Hamdan was picked up in Afghanistan, and here I'm going to take issue again, until the D.C. Circuit, it's exactly the opposite. Courts have found the Geneva Conventions to be enforceable. I would point uh, us to the United States versus Torito, a Ninth Circuit case, uh, wherein the Ninth Circuit found that an Italian prisoner of war could enforce those portions that had to do with how he was confined. Mr. Torito argued that he was being forced to work. In contrary to the Geneva Conventions, the court actually got to the merits, not saying that he couldn't enforce it, but, you know, hey, you initially signed up, you took the paycheck, you're working voluntarily, which was probably the right decision. More recently, in the United States versus Norega, in fact, they gave him all the protections of POW. Uh, there's somehow a, an idea that that'll prevent him from being charged, hardly. He was absolutely chargeable for his pre-trial uh, criminal acts, or excuse me, his pre-war criminal acts. Uh, and yeah, including among that, conspiracy to distribute drugs. Just it wasn't the military, wasn't the right forum for that one, a civil trial was. Now had he committed war crimes on that battlefield of Panama, then the military would have been equally a right forum. Uh, I'm going to end though with what probably should bother you the most a full and fair trial. No one can ask for more. I've never asked for more for my client than a full and fair trial. I don't know. What, I get an extra special, more than fair trial? Hardly. Here's what we say a full and fair trial can be. Military commission spokesmen have said that coercion can be used. Testimony that was obtained under coercion. Uh, reported, and I admit this is a stretch, but Apparently, it would be okay, at least by the spokesman's position, that this would be okay in a full and fair trial, that you could use this technique where you put a towel that's wet over someone's face and induce the sense of drowning. Well, that's actually not unprecedented in, military, in U.S. justice. Anyone know where it was done? Salem, in the witchcraft trials. You dunk somebody, and if they admit they're a witch, or more importantly, indict someone else, 
person's a witch. Think about that. Also, the accused doesn't have the right to be there. National security. Well, the Quirin saboteurs, and this is where we've now departed even the most basic of historic patterns, the judge advocate general in the army during the Civil War actually disapproved military commissions where it did not indicate absolutely that the accused was there for all sections of their trial. The minor part of voir dire, the Supreme Court in an early uh, Supreme Court case in the 1829 called that singularly the most funda- one of the most fundamental elements of our judicial system, part of the common law, and was essential to jurisdiction. But he can't be there. And we can bring in evidence that he, can't, he has no way of confronting. Well, we recently dealt with that. Actually, the Supreme Court did in a case called United States versus Crawford. Judge Scalia wrote that opinion. And he looked historically at Sir Walter Raleigh's case, another low moment in uh, the form of English justice. Sir Walter Raleigh was convicted of treason based on two statements that were obtained from the Tower. All they were was written statements, and in that case, at least they were signed by the people who were alleged his accusers. His accusers were not brought forward. Now here, they don't have to be signed by the accusers. They can simply be a police statement of what the accusers said but at least those were signed. And he said that this is fundamentally unfair, that you have to, it is the central core of American jurisprudence that your accuser be brought in front of you and you have the right to challenge them. There is a suggestion that I will be able to make up for this, that somehow I'll be able to cure all of these ills inside the commission process because after all I'll be there Uh, whoever suggests that has never been a defense attorney the reason for that is how do you prepare for cross-examination you talk to your client you ask them did this happen who else was there is this the way you know is there any fact in this is wrong all of those fundamental questions that frame the cauldron of cross-examination. You see, it's not my trial. I'm defending him and exercising the right for him on his behalf. But it has to be his right to confront his accusers. We're having a full and fair trial where the rules permit, and this is why I say at the onset, don't start, basically the departures from those tenets of our jurisprudence that we have considered most essential. We presume the accused guilty to get to this trial. We don't let him confront the evidence against him. We use a crime that would be considered ex post facto because it was not part of the laws of war before. Uh, We admit evidence that while part of our tradition was universally condemned, and then we say it's full and fair. When our citizens are abroad and these things are done, how will we say it was wrong? Thank you. Okay, we're going to have our brief uh, second round. Rich, uh, five minutes. 
I wanted to respond just briefly to a couple of the points that Commander Swift raised. Uh, first of all, he discussed briefly the Milligan decision, which was decided by the Supreme Court in the aftermath of the Civil War. Uh, Mr. Milligan was a, a uh, uh, man who lived in Indiana and was not happy with the progress of the Civil War, and he and a couple of friends conspired together to uh, uh, cause some trouble in Indiana. They had no connection at all with Confederate forces. Nonetheless, he was tried and convicted in front of a military commission. After his uh, his uh, conviction was all done, he then filed a habeas corpus petition on the Supreme Court threw it out because basically they said when the courts in Indiana were open so that they could have charged him with a crime there, that's what they should have done. And they specifically said this guy had nothing to do with the Confederate Army. He was just a, a troublemaker in Indiana. And in fact, that is how the decision was interpreted by the Supreme Court in 1942 in the current case. They said that in Milligan, uh, Milligan stands for the proposition that somebody who's not part of an uh, enemy uh, military force uh, has to be tried in the civilian courts if the civilian courts are open. But uh, the Kieran court then went on to say, but if you are a member of an opposing military force, then you can be tried in front of a military commission. Now, uh, Tim raised some very valid issues about how we need to be worried about civil liberties in this country, and I am somebody who uh, has those very same concerns, and a couple of things that you ought to uh, be made aware of. First of all, the order establishing military commissions is not applicable to United States citizens, so we are only talking about uh, foreign citizens who could possibly be brought in front of, of uh, uh, a military commission. Now, it is true that the legal arguments that are raised in support of the military commissions here conceivably could be applied to an uh, American citizen as well, but that is not the issue that we are facing here. Uh, moreover, uh, the fact that this is not a declared war, and World War II was, and so uh, somehow that makes Kieran much different, uh, I'm not really sure holds water. The fact is that Congress very soon after 9-11 did specifically target uh, al-Qaeda as an enemy force, did specifically authorize the president to take all appropriate military force uh, against al-Qaeda and its supporters, and it has been true throughout military history that military commissions have always been thought to be part and parcel of the conduct of war. Uh, so that uh, there, there really is specific authorization for what is going on here. Now, in the aftermath of World War II, there were about 2 million uh, 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 foreigners who were in the United States custody. And if you had said then that every single one of them was entitled to some sort of civilian court proceeding to test the propriety of their detention and to test and to contest the uh, military commission proceedings that were going on, clearly uh, it would have overwhelmed the civilian court system. And that is one of the reasons that we have the availability of military commissions, is that so if it came to a point where there uh, were going to be a large number of cases and the civilian courts would be overwhelmed, uh, that we would have an alternative way of going forward. At this point, the number of cases that uh, are 
contemplated being brought uh, in front of military commissions is not large. There are, I think, at this point, five or six with perhaps another ten in the offing. I'm not sure that there really are 70 that Commander Swift mentioned. Uh, but the point is, is that even the small number of cases that we have had in the civilian court system have not worked out well. You only have to look at the ongoing trial of uh, Zacharias Massawi over in Alexandria to realize the difficulties that are caused when a defendant insists, for example, of the right to interview every potential witness who is in uh, government custody uh, to see what they might have to say uh, that bears on your guilt or innocence. And you realize that uh, that's something that cannot be easily handled when you're talking about uh, bringing war crime trials against people who were a part of an ongoing uh, uh, military force. Now, there will come a day when al-Qaeda is defeated and we will no longer have the, uh, the congressional authorization, and I would hope at that point that we don't have a president who decides that the war on drugs is sufficient to uh, uh, conduct military tribunals. Uh, in fact, I would hope that Congress, even today, were to step in and to set up rules for the conduct of military commissions. Congress, I believe, has made it clear that commissions are okay, but unlike in the case of court-martials, they haven't set any rules. In the absence of such rules, what was the Pentagon to do? It did its best to come up with a set of rules that I believe are quite fair, that, uh, for example, establish the presumption of innocence, uh, follow the rules that were followed uh, in military commissions in World War II, give significant procedural rights to people like Mr. Uh, uh, Hamdan, and uh, uh, if, if Congress were to step forward, I would applaud it. But in the meantime, since Congress has made it clear that military commissions in the abstract are authorized, uh, it's only appropriate that the President has to go forward on his own. Thank you very much. Commander Swift, five minutes. Very briefly, I think one of the important points, because we're talking about what's before the court today, tomorrow. Uh, the court made clear in Hamdi that citizenship has nothing to do with these questions. Citizenship was not the issue in Quirin. In Quirin, the issue was what do the laws of war entitle the president to do? And if the president has the powers under the laws of war, he has the power against any citizen or alien equally. The, uh, the issue of whether you're an alien or enemy combatant or one of these is whether the courts are open, whether you can challenge it. Citizens always can, but if the laws of war permit it, as they pointed out in Hamdi, then citizenship is not a protection from the uh, imposition of the power. The president alone right now chooses to limit that, but there were calls in the uh, case of Padilla for him to change it. And that, well, gee, if these things get too unburdensome, they can change it, and this decision combined with Hamdi certainly means that it can be expanded to citizens. There wouldn't be any bar, given that Quirin is the precedent, and if it's reaffirmed, uh, that's where we stand. Uh, also, central to the question is still this question of whether it's a war at all, and who gets to make the rules, what kind of a war it is, and how far that scope goes. Because to buy the 1995 argument, it has to go that far. Uh, Milligan made a very important, I, I quibble on the facts a bit. First of all, Milligan was setting up to free the Confederates. In fact, he was going to attack an armory, 
with compatriots and then do that to free a Confederate prisoner of war camp. Now, would anybody say, or do you think he, the the president would say that someone who did that decided to attack an army in Miami and then get down to Guantanamo and try and free the people at uh, you know, who was you know, sympathetic with Al Qaeda, a quote unquote supporter? By the way, my client is not accused of being a member of Al Qaeda. He's either a member or a supporter. Wouldn't be a war criminal. Hmm. The other thing that uh, was put out on the Milligan trial was they met, the court had a, a basic observation that I believe should hold true throughout. It said it makes no sense to subject someone to punishment under the laws of war when they cannot claim its protections. And that is exactly essentially at the end what military commissions are. They're a one-way street. Mr. Hamden is totally liable for fighting under the laws of war. In fact, the argument is he can't fight at all. The only way for Mr. Hamden to fight this war or anyone is to surrender. Uh, on the other hand, the laws of war don't bind us at all. We can do whatever we want. One-way street. That's unprecedented law. No one argued that we could treat the Japanese any way we wanted. You see... And here is the fundamental departure for me. The laws of war were set up to get rid of the idea that to the victor went everything. At the ancient times, a defeated army or general was drugged to Caesar's feet for him alone to declare their fate. The laws of war said, no, we agree that this is how we're going to behave. I like to say it's sort of the difference between the Old Testament and the New. In the Old Testament... It was an eye for an eye. And that's essentially what we're evoking here. In the New Testament, it was do unto others as you would have them do unto you. One side's violation doesn't mean that now I'll violate it. I think this nation was built on the New Testament. Thank you. Okay, we're going to open it up the floor now to uh, take your questions. I think I'll exercise the moderator's prerogative and ask the first question. Um, and this is for Commander Swift. Um, we're told that the rules of the military tribunals are fair, but I know I read in a few places that when you were assigned to defend Mr. Hamden, even before you had an opportunity to meet with your client, you were instructed that your job was to negotiate a guilty plea for him. Is that true, and can you elaborate on how that happened? Certainly. Uh, I was initially detailed pursuant to a letter that came from the prosecution. It asked the chief defense counsel, then per Colonel Gunn, to detail me to this case, to Mr. Hamdan, for the purposes of negotiating a pretrial uh, guilty plea, to no negotiate a pretrial plea, and that access to Mr. Hamdan was contingent upon those negotiations. And should they break down, that I could be, that Mr. Hamdan was no longer guaranteed access to me. Now, that's what I had to go down and tell him on January 30th when I finally met with him. The government was not prepared in this system for a rapid system in that while Mr. Hamdan spoke Arabic, they didn't have any Arabic translators for me. I was fortunate I went and found my own, which has actually worked out very well. 
but it shows the level of the ad hoc, we're ready to do this, oops, we forgot a translator. When I met with him, though, I had to explain this. And we're at the Supreme Court because of essentially what I explained to him. I said to him that, well, the conversation began after he'd looked at this. He wasn't that surprised. He said, well, the guards say there, are, there is no law here. What are you even doing here? And I said, I think the guards are wrong. I think there is law. I don't think there's no law anywhere. And he said, what do we have to do? And I said, we're going to have to go to the Supreme Court of the United States. He said, will that make me famous? I said, probably. He said, I don't want to be famous. I said, I don't think you have a choice. And then I promised him that even if I never saw him again, that if he didn't want to plead guilty, I'd file on his behalf, and we'd go to federal court, and we'd try and get our, to the Supreme Court of the United States, whereas Judge Roberts has said, even the littlest man has an opportunity to be heard. Okay, I'm going to take your questions now. I have three requests. First, uh, when I call on you, please wait for the microphone to come down so everybody can hear your question. Second, please identify yourself and any affiliation you may have before you ask your question. And then please keep your questions brief so that we can get to as many people as possible. Right down here. Ron Bajans with Kuwait News Agency here in Washington. Uh, can you either or both of you address the uh, the broadest possible ruling that could come uh, from this and also just how narrow could they go here if they want to really you know not get into I understand there's 10 or 12 major legal issues and, and I'm not trying to dissect each one I'm just trying to do you, do you see a, a possibility of a very broad far-reaching ruling and or the most narrowest of rulings that would leave this very much unresolved? Rich? Well, the narrowest ruling would be that uh, under the, either under the Detainee Treatment Act or under the doctrine of abstention that uh, the court is going to take a pass on the case for now and rather you have to have a trial and after the uh, trial is over if there is a conviction the uh, Detainee Treatment Act provides for a suit to be brought in the uh, D.C. Circuit, uh, presumably under, if you still had habeas corpus rights, you could you could file anywhere. That would be obviously the, the best uh, outcome for the government. Uh, on the other hand, the worst outcome for the government, the best for Mr. Hamdan, would be, number one, that there is jurisdiction, number two, that the president lacks all constitutional authority to set up commissions, therefore, uh, the uh, uh, the entire procedure has to be stopped and there is an injunction. Now, where that leaves Mr. Hamdan, I don't know, because he is still being detained under a separate finding that he is an enemy combatant. So he, at that point, would then need to bring a separate proceeding if he ever wanted to get free. Actually, we're in that proceeding already. Uh, we, we, we were with all the other detainees as well, uh, initially before Judge Green. And it was agreed by all parties, and we certainly agreed to this, that this was a, for Mr. Hamdan, a question that had to be answered before you got to what is done with him next. So what would happen is he would simply join the other detainees who are currently litigating in the D.C. Circuit, uh, presumably because while Judge Green 
in the abstract ruled for him, uh, the D.C. Circuit is deciding whether that ruling will stand up or not. Um, but, you know, he would simply join in that proceeding. He's kind of been a ghost in the room, uh, interested but doing his own case right now. Um, and whatever happens there will apply to him. Uh, there is a couple of other very narrow ways for them to come out on my position. Uh, perhaps the most attractive legal argument for a court that doesn't want to confirm what's been done but does want to, you know, doesn't want to engage in very broad is to take the look that Quirin did. Most of the Quirin decision is about uh, whether this is a war crime. I think of the 10 or 12 pages that is Quirin, something like six or seven are devoted to, is it a war crime? And uh, for the court could then rule that conspiracy is not a war crime and therefore not triable. That would not answer any of the other questions. They could say, this crime isn't triable. We'll consider the rest of the stuff later because it's not necessary for us to reach it. Or, and they could do that and then have what we uh, lawyers call dicta, which would be suggestions from many on how, what would be legal or wouldn't be legal. But again, it would be if they rule on conspiracy, just that dicta. Um, it wouldn't necessarily be binding on anyone. Be suggestive. Um, and again, they could rule also that the, the, the commission processes have to comply with some set of rules, et cetera, or the Geneva Conventions. And the easiest way to do that is they simply say that Judge Robertson's order stays in place. Uh, and that's that, and we're done. So there's all kinds of possible outcomes on this. Yes, right here. Hi, I'm Richard Youngflesh from the Northern Virginia Community College. I know uh, President Bush has said that we have a war on terror, but uh, Congress has never made a formal declaration of war. And Mr. Samp, you mentioned this. Uh, is there a legal distinction to the presidential authority where there's a formal declaration of war or just an authorization, authorization to use force? Well, that's one of the issues that could well be decided in this case. The Kieran decision from 1942 is very much on point and supports the establishment of military commissions. And so, of course, lawyers on the other side do their best to try to distinguish the Kieran case. And the number one thing that they've come up with as to why Kieran is distinguishable is the fact that there was not a declared war. Uh, I'm not sure why it should make a difference, but that's the argument that's being made. So it's conceivable that uh, this uh, decision will uh, help to clarify what's the difference between a declared war and an undeclared war. If I could address that just briefly. Uh, here are the differences. In a declared war, we're at war instantaneously. The declaration itself creates war. Uh, do I expect there ever to be a declared war again? No. Why? The uh, UN Charter makes declared war illegal. There are only two types of wars. Police actions authorized by the Security Council, see Korea, uh, Vietnam, and then uh, self-defense, defense of yourself. Authorization from use of military force, to me, actually doesn't go to a declaration or not. Authorization of U.S. use of military force goes to that idea of war powers of the president. That is, Congress in the Vietnam War said, gee, you have to do these particular things and notify us, et cetera, before you use military force. Every president has argued that is unconstitutional. 
Um, but my view, the AUMF amounted to basically a question of whether the president was going to have to abide by uh, Congress's legislation. You know, that it was, you know, you're not going to have to abide by war powers and give us notifications. You can do what you want. If we look at it in the context of Iraq, what we see is that it would be really that war is a factual test, even if you buy that the AUMF is tantamount to a declaration. I don't think anyone believed we were at war with Iraq on the day that the AUMF was passed. Nobody believed it started the war. In fact, when did the war start? When the planes flew and the, and the uh, tanks rolled. So it's a factual test, and that brings us to the interesting question of al-Qaeda, which is unprecedented in fact. This type of a stateless, territorialist organization that doesn't even control any rudimentary area of territory has never been considered. You know, combat against that sort of thing has never been considered a war. Even the Indian wars, they were treated as sovereign nations with the ability to make treaty, and it was unquestionable that they, they possessed certain areas of land under their control. Al-Qaeda has none of those rights. They would be more likely considered, at least at the time, as the equivalent of a pirate. A pirate was a stateless, territorialist organization that did not abide by any law and was despised under international law, but they weren't hunted under war powers, although the military did it. They were hunted under the idea of international criminals. So there's a question. Perhaps it should change. There's certainly good arguments for changing it, given the threat that international terrorists can now pose that they never could have posed before because of technology. But our position is is that if that is true, at least for the imposition of justice, Congress needs to write the rules, not the president. That's the idea and the fundamental separation in a country. That There are hard decisions to make here, folks, hard decisions on what is necessity, what do we need to really do, how do we balance the fundamental rights I've talked about. The best place to do that is in a debate and full hearing before the Congress of the United States and that for them to consider it, for all of y'all's voices to be heard in that. And I think you know, we have faith in our legislative and executive branches of government together to work out a solution. Yes. Washington Independent Writers. Uh, did Richard Samp have a reaction to... Uh, Charles Swift's legal comparison uh, with the Old and New Testament. And Commander Swift, wasn't the law of God perfect in the Old Testament and fulfilled or completed in the New Testament? <laughs> well, I'll, 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 I'll look the reaction. I don't have a reaction other than that uh, uh, I think that the system that has been established is fair, and so to the extent that the New Testament uh, 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 says that we should treat people fairly, I think that's what we are doing. Uh, my, my answer is that the Old Testament uh, permitted slavery, it permitted stoning, it uh, decreed punishments of death for working on the Sabbath, and that the New Testament went to a different idea of the idea in it that you would treat others as you yourself would seek to be treated. And that really underlies, that philosophy underlies the rules of war. 
as barbaric as war can be, what we seek is this basic creed of humanity that I will treat the other side the way I expect to be treated, not how I am treated. Roger. I'm Roger Pilon with the Cato Institute. Commander Swift, I'm having a difficult time discerning whether your argument is against military commissions as such or just these military commissions. And secondly, I'm also um, concerned that how it is that uh, the president could have had authority under the Constitution, inherent authority, to conduct and institute military commissions for about 150, 170 years, and all of a sudden now he can't do it without congressional authority. What's changed in the Constitution? I am not, per se, against military commissions. What we have to understand is that the commission has evolved, just as our courts and military court marshals have evolved. Um, in, in this case, a name doesn't designate necessarily the procedures. Uh, and our principal objection to the, the president's military order as it's written is that it's being used in an unprecedented war. It's not part of history. And that that's how he doesn't have it anymore. Is that he has what history had given him. And, or, you know, if the president, for instance, wanted to use the commission on the battlefield of Afghanistan to try people solely for the crimes committed there, I have no objection. Or had the president chose to use military commissions in Iraq as part of an occupation government to prevent looting, uh, I would have had no objection. Uh, I don't see an objection to that um, on a legal basis as an attorney. It is the fact that it is being used outside those conflicts that now opens the definition where and basically blurs the boundaries between military and civilian justice. The second part I have is that you know, after, before World War II, they used to call military justice. They said military justice was to justice what music was to music. And we've evolved. Or, excuse me, martial music was to music. Uh, we've evolved. Uh, our standards of fairness have evolved significantly. You know, when the last military commission was approved, it was perfectly permissible constitutionally to in prison all Japanese citizens in concentration camps. It was permissible to have separate but equal schools. It was permissible under this system uh, to deny people basic rights and privacy. The law changed. Uh, I would hate to think that the standards of the past are the standards of the present. I think it's kind of interesting as I hear this discussion that to point out that, that uh, Commander Swift has done a very good job of advocating the military justice side of Hamden's case. And at the same time, there is a professor at Georgetown by the name of Neil Cattiel, who has been uh, doing a good job of uh, raising the constitutional claims on behalf of Hamden. And as you heard right there, there's a certain amount of tension between their arguments because in his brief, Professor Cattiel very strongly says that the president lacks the constitutional authority to set up military commissions. And uh, Commander Swift kind of backs away from that a little bit and says, well, maybe not all commissions are are bad, but at least these are bad. So that uh, uh, 
I think that they've done a fairly good job in their their briefs of glossing over the two. I think I am much closer to Commander Swift's position than I am to Professor Cattiel's. Okay, we have time for one more. Way in the back. Thank you. Catherine Newell Bierman, Human Rights Watch. I have a question for both panelists. I'm going to ask you both please comment. Uh, in particular, um, I want to ask you about uh, the fact that the military commission rules implicitly allow the introduction of evidence obtained through, specific, uh, through torture. Last week, Department of Defense announced that they're contemplating a military commission instruction change which would preclude the use of evidence obtained through torture. Uh, the military commission rules also allow hearsay evidence. I'd like to ask both panelists to please comment on what an effective prohibition against the use of evidence obtained through torture would have to look like to be effective for these military commissions. In terms of what would make it effective, I defer to a military expert. I, I just don't know enough about that. I can tell you that I certainly uh, would oppose the uh, use of evidence that was obtained through torture if for no other reason than there is reason to doubt the uh, uh, veracity of such testimony, and, and therefore we ought not to be using it. Uh, as I understand military authorities, uh, they claim they never had any such intent, and so what they're planning to do now is to make their rules explicit in that regard, so that I've always viewed this idea that uh, uh, Hamden might be subject to uh, testimony obtained through torture as somewhat of a red herring. With respect to the hearsay rule, it has always been true uh, throughout military history that commissions have used hearsay testimony. In particular, Nuremberg, the vast majority of the evidence was brought in through hearsay. Obviously, hearsay evidence is harder to uh, impeach than other types of evidence, but uh, uh, it is certainly um, nonetheless subject to impeachment on the very grounds that it is hearsay, and I would hope that uh, Commander Swift would do his best to try to impeach it in that manner. Uh, to get it straight, that's the fundamental problem with the rules as they stand. We have a prohibition on torture. First of all, we don't know what torture means. We're not enforcing any particular treaty here, so is it really the definition that's set out in the International Torture Convention, which would sound like anything that was coerced by anything that would cause mental uh, would, would amount to mental or physical coercion? Or is it something closer to the definition that was suggested in the infamous torture memo? That as long as it doesn't kill him or seriously damage him for life, that it's okay. Um, the next part is, how do we know? Certainly there were memorandums published in the New York Times and Walter, Wall Street Journal that suggested that even the prosecutors aren't investigating that or being prevented from, from investigating it. This is not a system where we can guarantee that the people who did the interrogations will be brought front and center. Now, cross-examination is the cauldron for this, but you can't cross-examine a piece of paper. So the argument is left is that I'm going to argue that this was unfair. Now, of course, everybody on the other side, implicit in being here, accepts that it was fair. Uh, I've loved that argument. It was suggested by the chief prosecutor who said, well, that's what they argued in the Japanese Tokyo tribunals and then neglects that everyone who did it was convicted. Uh, it's a recipe to lose. The alternate way, but I don't think this is fair to the government, is say the government must prove that it wasn't obtained by torture. 
Okay. How do you prove a negative? Government's in real trouble now. How can they prove that anything was ever not done? Well, if the specter looms at all. We've relied for 250 years. We've had allegations of uh, uh, you know, evidence obtained by coercion, either being be- a beaten out confession or being held down in a cell till they confessed. Stuff, you know, that sort of thing have appeared in... Gosh, I, I dare say if you walk around the Virginia courtrooms for two days, you're going to hear one. How do we find out whether it was true? Cauldron of cross-examination. And that's exactly what we don't allow here. It is a fundamental reason that we keep passing these rules that aren't enforceable to have the court lay down and say this has to apply to our basic Anglo-Saxon jurisprudence. What we believe as a nation is required fair. And I again disagree that it, it follows to the rules. I'll simply cite you back to William Winthrop. William Winthrop said that to the extent that military commissions should apply, and for those of you who don't know, William Winthrop is the Blackstone of military justice and cited repeatedly by the Supreme Court when they look at these issues. He said that commissions uh, have all of the basic rules of of court-martial, and for any rule that was essential to fairness, they should never depart. So, again, I disagree that commissions have considered anything like this in the past. I'm afraid we've run out of time. Would you please give both of our advocates a good round of applause for them?